0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio.
1: When I was excited about life, I didn't want to write at talk. I've never written about being happy, never. I didn't want to. Besides, I don't think you can describe being happy. I've never had a long period of being happy. Do you think anybody has? I think I, I think you can be peaceful for quite a long time. But to be happy is, is, is different, isn't it? And that's a bit rare. Right? I can't have feeling. But then altogether, I, I, I think... Well, I think if I had to choose, I'd rather be happy than right. <laughs> if I had my life all over again and could choose...
0: Mm, "'I'd rather be happy than right. hello as a child,' she was taunted with the cruel nickname White Cockroach. Her father was a Welsh doctor. Her mother was a Creole woman. She grew up in the Caribbean and died in England and did not feel at home in either place. An outsider, always. Someone who defined happiness as something like the absence of pain.' she sought peacefulness more than happiness, she sought rest, she sought solitude, and yet for an outsider, she had surprising experiences. She was a chorus girl in London for a while, and as a young writer, she was encouraged by Ford Maddox Ford, practically the embodiment of the word insider. She was a successful novelist, but not a famous one. Then she didn't write or publish for 27 years. And when she finally wrote again, publishing her masterpiece of a short novel, Wide Sargasso Sea, she was hailed by the New York Times Book Review as the greatest novelist working in English. We know her, of course, as Jean Rhys, and her life continues to fascinate, even as her work continues to dazzle. The Jean Rhys Story, today, on the History of Literature. here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to November. Gene Reese. What a story. What a story. We will get to that soon. We might have a quick episode today, a shorter one than usual, because frankly, I am something of a basket case, even more than typically, even more than I typically am. A basket case. Have you ever wondered where that phrase came from? Let me look that up. Yikes. Oh, no. Oh, boy. I just looked it up. It has a horrendous origin. I'm probably not going to use that expression again. Let's not use that one again. Its original use was to refer to U.S. soldiers in World War One who had lost all four limbs and were literally being transported in baskets, according to the rumor or legend. There's no real evidence that baskets were actually used. It seems to have been a rumor that took off. Wow. I had no idea. It has since taken on the meaning of a person emotionally unable to cope, which is what I meant when I used it just now, although I feel like the phrase is offensive, kind of dark, kind of slanderous to soldiers, who had suffered quite a bit. Why am I unable to cope? That's the bigger question. What's dominating my emotions? Ah, tomorrow is election day here in America, and it is a big one. A lot depends on tomorrow. And in a way, nothing does. The problems we have in America are clearly much bigger than a single election. We're not going to solve things in one day. But elections have consequences, and the results will matter, which is why I am, like most people, hardly able to do anything else. So... Let's set all that aside. Maybe you're like me and need a break. So instead, we'll take a look at the incredible writer Jean Reese, who served as a kind of corrective or an amplification. We'll get into that soon, what I mean by that. Her novel, Wide Sargasso Sea, is a retelling of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. And when that book arrived, it changed her life. It changed our view of Bronte's classic work. And it still stands as a pioneering work of feminism and post-colonial thinking or rethinking of concepts long taken as a given. It's kind of perfect. We'll cover all that in a moment along with Reese's life, but first let's hear an email. This one is from listener Alia. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Oh, and let me just add for you emailers, I have fallen way behind on correspondence once again. If you've written me, I have read your email, I believe. But I'm miles behind in writing and returning responses. I, I hope to get to all of them, but sometimes it is a little daunting and I might not. I need to set aside some time, but it seems there's never enough time left over. In any case, I'm doing my best. My apologies to those of you who've written with urgency. I deeply regret I haven't been able to get to them all more quickly. Okay, subject from an Egyptian in Italy. Dear Jack, how are you? Well, I hope you are doing well, since I can't hear you respond to this. I wanted to write this to thank you wholeheartedly. I'm an Egyptian graduate student in Venice, specializing in European-American post-colonial studies in languages and literature. What a mouthful, right? I'm writing to thank you because your podcast has been a shelter for me on the lonely island, truly. Starting my second semester, I thought the only trying experience was the Acqua Alta in Venice. I think you'll recall it was the highest registered since 1966. For those of you who don't know, Acqua Alta is high water. It's when Venice floods. I can't even begin to describe the feeling of entering a morning class on witchcraft in Renaissance drama with galoshes and the sensation of the freezing lagoon water at your feet. It was both exciting and arduous, to say the least. Oh, What an image. I had some great classes in college. And grad school too, I guess. But man, a morning class on witchcraft and renaissance drama with galoshes and freezing lagoon water at your feet. That is high living. (laughs) Back to the email. And then in the midst of this, I found myself in the pandemic, stuck in Venice and not just that the Lido of Venice, like a character in a short story. In my small room and self fashioned reading corner, you could find me reading Thomas Mann's Death in Venice at the wake of the pandemic in Italy. The irony was not lost on me. Still, I couldn't find anyone to talk to or listen to, even with the online classes, someone who could understand the deep intricacies of what it felt like to be stuck. There is something bittersweet when you are the chooser of your own cage. So when I stumbled upon your podcast and I listened to the episode on Italo Calvino, The Distance of the Moon, well, suffice to say, it was magical. We will probably be entering another lockdown soon, but I am faring a lot better. I have escaped Aschenbach's fate and left the Lido and now reside in Venice proper. And there still remains many podcast episodes to listen to. My favorites are the reading of Boccaccio's Decameron and the reading of The Lady with the Little Dog, which I have replayed several times over. I wanted to suggest, in the interest of Halloween, that you do a reading of one of Angela Carter's short stories. The Lady in the House of Love is my personal recommendation. I feel it's very apropos with vampires, a haunted castle, and that feeling we've all come to know so well. Solitude. Wishing you all the best. Alia. Oh, Alia, Alia, Alia. What a beautiful email. My goodness. I'm very glad to know that the podcast has been helpful to you in Venice, especially during the pandemic. We missed the chance to read Angela Carter this Halloween, but that's such a great idea. Maybe we'll turn to that story in 2021 next October. We've done vampires a couple of times here. Dracula, for one, I remember with Jim Shepard, and our look at uh, blood transfusions was heavy on the Bram Stoker. But why not? Another vampire, even though it's now November, it still feels like October to me. We can look ahead. I still can't quite get over how this podcast has made its way into so many places around the world. If you told me five years ago, oh, hey, Jack, by the way, if you start this podcast there will be an Egyptian graduate student who specializes in European-American post-colonial studies and languages and literature who will be listening to you, reading Chekhov's Lady with a Little Dog and Calvino while she waits out a pandemic in Venice. I would have thought a couple of things. First, that such a dream would not be possible. And second, that if by some chance such a dream were possible, Five years of toiling away, putting out a podcast, would not have been wasted. I'll add Venice to the History of Literature world tour. Hopefully you'll still be there then, and Mike and I can meet you for a coffee on the Piazza San Marco. Maybe in drier days (laughs) and less uh, quarantined times. Thank you again, Alia. Best wishes, and stay safe. Because Alia mentioned postcolonial literature and because Jean Reese is such an important figure in that discipline, let me give you a quick sketch of it. I think of it as a deepening, a rethinking. The word postcolonial is incredibly contested, and I'm not here to debate you about your definition. Don't email me sorry. Don't email me, please. And tell me that you have a different definition. I know you do. That's fine. You can post it on your blog if you want. That can be your outlet for that. Tell the world exactly what you think about the word or the discipline or whatever you want to do. But for those of you who would like a little orientation to what's going to follow, here's how I think of it. First of all, post doesn't mean past or beyond. It doesn't mean works that followed colonialism exactly. If there's a time element to it, it might be Works that followed a kind of acceptance of colonialism as the way things naturally were. In that sense, their post blindness. What post colonial thinkers and writers said was you cannot really understand the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries or the world we have today without accounting for the impact that European colonial rule had on the world. The interactions that arose between Europeans and others or the other, in caps, or the aesthetic, economic, historical, and social impact of colonial rule on those cultures in Africa, in the Americas, in Asia, everywhere. A post-colonial thinker, and we find such thinkers in literature, in history, in economics, in every social studies, and humanities discipline, all the social sciences. Did I say social studies? throwback to my elementary school days, social sciences, I mean, really, all the different areas, anywhere you find a thoughtful person, you'll find a post-colonial thinker. And they said, how can we think about European philosophy or European literature or European history or concepts like power and economics and religion and culture without taking into account imperialism and colonial rule. How can we conceive of those concepts as if imperialism and colonialism were just not there, not going on? How do we understand world literature or world history without fully accounting for the impact of colonialism, the fact of it? It's too big to just subtract it from the analysis. Whether you're looking at European writers or writers from the colonized, countries. The theory really emerged in the 1980s when scholars were thinking about feminism and critical race theory as well, challenging the status quo and post-colonial thinking fit right in. and there was Jean Reese, her masterpiece published in 1960 in the 1960s, right there, ready to be discovered, embraced, studied, celebrated. For a post-colonial literary thinker, it was as if the perfect text had broken some fresh and fertile ground or, in Kafka's phrase, as if an axe had struck the frozen sea. So let's take a quick break and when we return, we will start our story of Gene Reese. Now, if you were going to find a person to sing a song about Gene Reese, a kind of permanent outsider underdog, well, I can think of a lot of people actually. But when Stevie Nicks comes a-knocking, my door opens. Here she is singing her song, Wide Sargasso Sea.
2: In the beginning, she was stunning and pure. When he first saw her, he faded to the floor. She was distant and arrogant from the star She did not see the fragile state of his heart. Fell in love with him on that very day She became softer in every way Even though they were so in love They drew a line in the sand Just because they did not know each other They did not trust The only thing that they did together He was still an Englishman. and the heat and the ocean. crazy. Away
0: from Jean Reese was born Ella Gwendolyn Reese Williams in 1890 in Dominica, an island in the West Indies or Caribbean. I say Dominica, although it's often pronounced Dominica thanks to its long history as the French colony and the French name Dominique. Dominica was settled by the Arawak from South America in the 5th century, although the Arawak were replaced by the Kalinago about a thousand years after that. Soon after that, Columbus sailed past it, and in another century or two, the French had asserted their dominion, colonizing the place, importing slaves from West Africa to work on the coffee plantations from 1690 to 1763. Great Britain took it over in 1763 and over time established English as the official language. All of these settlers were drawn to the island's beauty and natural resources. It has lush rainforests, rare plants and animals and birds, geothermal activity from volcanoes, hot springs, and fertile soil. What matters to us are a couple of periods. The early 19th century, especially the British sugar and coffee plantations that used slave labor, and the British anti-slavery movement that led to the slavery Abolition Act of 1833, which ended slavery throughout the British Empire, except in India. That's the first period. The second one brings us forward to the childhood of Ella Gwendolyn Reese Williams, our subject for today. Reese's father was a Welsh doctor, and her mother was a Creole woman whose last name was originally Lockhart. She was a third-generation Dominican whose roots stretched back to Scotland. Creole then referred to any person born on the island, whether they were black or white or a mix. Jean Reese viewed herself as white, although this gave her an outsider status as a child. The kids taunted her and called her White Cockroach. She had a rocky relationship with her mother, and when she was 16... Her parents sent her to live with an aunt in England, and she was sent to a girl's school in Cambridge, but she hated that too. She was mocked for her accent and even kicked out of acting school. She attended the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London, but they couldn't get around her accent and described her as a slow learner. Does anything song... (laughs) Boy, I'm really having trouble today. Does anything sound wrong... To you about her accent, we heard it at the start of the show. My goodness, think about it. An accent and skin color, our prejudice is so strong we can't get over the simplest of characteristics. Here we see a person not fitting in, not being what's expected, not being understood. Diversity is not being celebrated, no matter where she is. Here's a quote from her unfinished biography that summarizes her life's experience with this. Quote, I would never be part of anything... I would never really belong anywhere, and I knew it. And all my life would be the same trying to belong and failing. Always something would go wrong. I am a stranger, and I always will be. And after all, I didn't really care. End quote. At this point, with acting school a bust. Reese's parents wanted her to return to the Caribbean, but she refused. She found work instead as a chorus girl in London under a bunch of different names. She was living as a bohemian now, a vagabond existence, touring small towns and living in run-down neighborhoods in London, finding work as a showgirl and staying in rooming houses. Her father died when she was 20. She kept bouncing around, and now she seems to have been living as a demimundane. We owe that word demi-mond which means half-world, to our old friend, Alexander Dumas, by the way, who described a world of sugar babies or prostitutes or paid mistresses or whatever you'd like to call it. Older, wealthy men paying younger, beautiful women for the pleasure of their company, and sometimes more than that. Reese was the mistress of a wealthy stockbroker named Lancelot Gray Hugh Smith, who had an even more famous and successful father. Smith refused to marry Reese, but he gave her money. Reese became pregnant by another man. She had an abortion that nearly took her life, and eventually she began writing. When the First World War broke out, she worked as a volunteer in a soldier's canteen before eventually landing a job in the pension office. A year later, she was married for the first time. She eventually got married three times. She had a son who died young and a daughter. Her first marriage was to an interesting guy who was French and Dutch, a journalist, a songwriter, and a spy. He himself was married five times. Reese was his third wife, and he also married another writer and a countess. He was a wild bohemian, the son of a textile manufacturer who traveled around the world speculating in currencies and fleeing countries left and right. She started writing when she was with him, but let's save her writing history for later. Her second husband was English, an editor, and the two of them traveled together back to Dominica. She was in her 40s now, and this was the first time she'd ever returned to her original island home. She found it disagreeable. Her old family estate was deteriorating. Her brother Oscar had had an affair with a a woman of mixed race, which had led to several children, and he had moved to England. Jean took care of this when she was there reaching a financial settlement with the woman. Uh, Jean got married a third time when she was in her fifties. Her second husband had died and she married his cousin two years later. After they were married, he was convicted of fraud and imprisoned. He died in 1966, the year her masterpiece was published. By then she had fallen into near anonymity. She lived in Devon now A place, she said, was, quote, a dull spot which even drink can't enliven much, end quote. Publishers had taken to putting advertisements in newspapers to ask about her whereabouts when they wanted to trade the rights of her books or use them for an adaptation or something. She was living in some kind of shack or shed in a slum neighborhood. It was a structure made of corrugated iron and tar paper. In 1964, when she was 74 years old, she complained about the cold and rain that came into her shack and she had a heart attack. For two years, her editor took care of her in the hospital, promising not to publish the masterpiece until Reese had made some final changes. Finally, the book was ready in 1966 and it was a success financially and critically. But Reese said, it has come too late. She was not very happy. She said this. Here's the quote we heard at the beginning, a little more fully, I think. Quote, when I was excited about life, I didn't want to write at all. I've never written when I was happy. I didn't want to, but I've never had a long period of being happy. Do you think anyone has? I think you can be peaceful for a long time. When I think about it, if I had to choose, I'd rather be happy than write. You see, there's very little invention in my books. What came first with most of them was the wish to get rid of this awful sadness that weighed me down. I found when I was a child that if I could put the hurt into words, it would go. It leaves a sort of melancholy behind, and then it goes. End quote. She was successful now and had a little more money, but she was in her late 70s. She died 12 years later at the age of 88. That might be a little bit of a bleak note to end on. Let's find something happier or at least funnier. Here are a couple of quotes that I like. In one of her novels, she describes a kind of peacefulness that could come from solitude. Now I no longer wish to be loved, beautiful, happy, or successful. I want one thing and one thing only, to be left alone. Maybe that's something she found. Maybe it's what she wanted most of all. let's end with some of her dark humor. This is from one of her letters. She said, Last night I was thinking if I could jump out of the window, one bang and I'd be out of it. For this is the sixth floor. Then I thought of Max's story of the old lady who went to church with her ear trumpet. And so the stern scotch sexton or verger or something eyed her a bit. Then he said, Madam, one toot and you're oot. Perhaps that's what it would be like. One toot and your oot. <laughs> End quote. Oh boy, that's my kind of humor, I have to say. One, to- <laughs> one toot and your oot. It's a funny story, even funnier, adapted to the state of mind Gene Reese was in. I'll have to send that one to our friend Margo. So let's take a quick break before returning to the writing of Gene Reese, including a deep dive into Wide Sargasso Sea after this. Here we go, Jean Rhys's writing career, and guess who makes an appearance? None other than Ford Maddox Ford. He was everywhere in the literary world in these years, helping Conrad and Hemingway and innumerable others. Jean Rhys met him in Paris when she was 34, married to her first husband, the spy, who was in jail for what Rhys called currency irregularities. After meeting Ford, she started writing short stories, and Ford liked them. He said she had an instinct for form, which, of course, is a perfect analysis, because that was indeed one of her talents, even an emphasis. It was very deeply rooted in her, this yearning for form in literature. Even when her prose was what we might call modernist or experimental, she always had a passion for form. In her unfinished biography, she said, quote, I like shape very much. A novel has to have shape, and life doesn't have any. End quote. Ford also liked her experience as an exile. He liked the point of view that that gave her. He wrote the preface for her first short story collection, which came out in 1927. That book was called The Left Bank and Other Stories, and Ford said, quote, coming from the West Indies with a terrifying insight and passion for stating the case of the underdog, she has let her pen loose on the left banks of the old world, end quote. There's a post-colonial spirit to those remarks by Ford, which were several decades early in that sense. Ford liked literature. He knew what it could do. He knew when it had power, whether that was from D.H. Lawrence or T.S. Eliot or whoever. He was playing a kind of Svengali to Jean Rhys now. It was he who told her to call herself Jean Rhys instead of Ella Williams, and he invited Rhys to move in with him and his partner, the sculptor Stella Bowen, and from there he seems to have coaxed Jean Reese into his bed, perhaps along with Stella too. It's the stuff of literary legends, and writers including Reese have included it in their fiction. Reese's first novel, Quartet, was based in Paris and describes an affair and bitter breakup with a character. It was based on Ford. What do we know for sure? We know Reese lived with Ford, slept with him with Bowen's knowledge, posed for Bowen's paintings and traveled around with them to the cafes of Paris, where she was shown off as Ford's protege, the three of them seeming respectable, but the subject of whispers everywhere. There was tension as Stella pretended to be nice to Jean, but silently disapproved of her and undermined her behind her back. It's ugly stuff, but explosive for fiction, although some publishers were afraid to publish it because the character was so obviously based on Ford, they were afraid of libel. After Quartet, Jean Rhys broke free from Ford and Bowen. She had issues with women relationships all of her life, especially mother-daughter relationships, and it might be noted here the rocky relationship she had with her own mother and her own daughter. Though on this subject we might also mention her friendship that she later had with her editor who was a woman and the novelist Ellie sorry, novelist Elliot Bliss another woman who was from the Caribbean. Elliot Bliss had taken her pseudonym from George Elliot, an author she admired. Although Ford had a fraught relationship with Reese, he recognized her passion for the underdog, which marked her writing, along with women protagonists on the margins of society and characters who were at emotional and psychological extremes. Reese drew upon real-life experiences for this. At first, using the modernist techniques similar to a wolf or a man's field, fragments, streams, repetition, the cycle of the character's experiences, a kind of spiraling down. She knew Gertrude Stein in Paris, and there's some of Stein in her work, too. Here's a passage from her third novel, Good Morning Midnight, which came out in 1934. Quote, That's the way it is. That's the way it goes. That was the way it went. A room, a nice room, a beautiful room, a beautiful room with bath, a very beautiful room with bath, up to the dizzying heights of the suite, two rooms, sitting room, bath and vestibule. The small bedroom is in case you don't feel like me, or in case you meet somebody you like better and come in late. Anything you want brought up on the dinner wagon, but alas, the waiter has a louse on his collar. What is that on his collar? Bitter schön, mein Herr, bitter Swing high. Now, slowly down, a beautiful room with bath, a room with bath, a nice room, a room. In all, Jean Reese published four novels between 1928 and 1939, Quartet, which was also called Postures, After Leaving Mr. Mackenzie, Voyage in the Dark, and Good Morning Midnight, and then 27 Years of Silence, as she worked on the short novel that she would save until it was perfect. I don't know if she worked on it all 27 years, but she started the idea and restarted it several times. She said the idea haunted her. The idea that she wouldn't get it right haunted her. The idea was to retell the story of Jane Eyre from the point of view of the madwoman in the attic, the wife Rochester brought home from Jamaica, the Creole woman he married and who went mad. Here's a quote from Jean Rees. If all good respectable people had one face. I'd spit in it. Here's a quote from Wide Sargasso Sea where Rochester finds that he can no longer stand the woman that he's married. He says, I hated the mountains and the hills, the rivers and the rain. I hated the sunsets of whatever color. I hated its beauty and its magic and the secret I would never know. I hated its indifference and the cruelty, which was part of its loveliness. Above all, I hated her, for she belonged to the magic and the loveliness. She had left me thirsty, and all my life would be thirst and longing for what I had lost before I found it. Wide Sargasso Sea takes its name from the part of the Atlantic in between England and Dominica, where ships were often stalled as they made their way across the Atlantic. It was known for being full of weeds, it's the no man's land between cultures, an area where no one wants to be. And of course, the word wide gives us the hint of its deadly power. Ships could become trapped there, baking in the hot sun, the passengers even dying of thirst over time. Reese's first title for the book was La Revenant, a nod to zombies or coming back from the dead, which is another haunting image. That would suit the story as well, as the narrator has a blurry connection with life and death, the past, and her current reality. Life and death mingle easily with one another, as do day and night, the present and the past, and all of it suffused with fear. Fear was not a new concept for her as a writer, not a new theme. In Voyage in the Dark, years earlier, she'd written, And I saw that all my life I had known that this was going to happen, and that I'd been afraid for a long time. I'd been afraid for a long time. There's fear, of course, with everybody, but now it had grown. It had grown gigantic. It filled me and it filled the whole world. End quote. Her pessimism was sometimes the source of a kind of plucky, if dark, optimism. In Good Morning Midnight, she'd written, quote, We can't all be happy. We can't all be rich. We can't all be lucky. And it would be so much less fun if we were. There must be the dark background to show up the bright colors. End quote. Decades later, we had this dark background, which she started with Jane Eyre, the book that centers around Bertha Mason, the first Mrs. Rochester, who is essentially jailed by him, placed in chains, and treated by the book as insane, terrifying, more animal than human. Her laughter is described as demonic. She crawls on all fours, snarling. Jean Reese tells a different story. In her book, Bertha Mason starts as Antoinette Cosway, a white girl who grew up in the Caribbean, suffered from disastrous uh, disastrous arranged marriage to Rochester, and finally goes mad, imprisoned in Rochester's English country house. Reese liked Bronte. She respected her. She respected Jane Eyre, the book, but she thought the story was incomplete. In a letter in 1949, she referred to the book as, quote, her book, I mean, The White Sargasso Sea, as, quote, The First Mrs. Rochester, and said she was writing it with, quote, profound apologies to Charlotte Bronte and a deep curtsy, too, end quote. She bumped the narrative up a bit in time, seemingly to make sure she was on the emancipated side of the Emancipation Act of 1833, when slavery was banned. In spite of that, her book is a prequel, To Jane Eyre, telling the story of the marriage of Rochester and Bertha Mason slash Antoinette Cosway. "'The mad first wife in Jane Eyre has always interested me,' Reese said in an interview. "'I was convinced Charlotte Bronte must have had something against the West Indies and I was angry about it. Otherwise, why did she take a West Indian for the horrible lunatic for that really dreadful creature?' end quote. And indeed, the rejected wife in Jane Eyre is horrible. Rochester gets a second chance. He gets to redeem himself with Jane. Meanwhile, the wife gets none of that. In Wide Sargasso Sea, we see Rochester's transition from someone who loves Antoinette's beauty to his frustration with her at their failed marriage. He becomes afraid of her. He believes rumors about the madness of her mother. He believes that she herself is sexually incontinent. Antoinette has only one friend who steals her dress and throws stones at her. Her mother neglects her. She trusts a nanny, but she’s afraid of her because she practices magic. Rochester meanwhile turns his fear and frustration into a kind of paranoia. He essentially enslaves Antoinette, gives her the name Bertha Mason, takes away her freedom. He doesn’t want to be married to her, but he doesn’t want her to be free either. He's terrified of the island with its strange location so he moves them both to England taking her family money and destroying her happiness. The book ends in England in the setting familiar from Jane Eyre with Antoinette or Bertha about to set the house on fire and to kill herself presumably. She says now at last I know why I was brought here and what I have to do. The world of Jane Eyre has permeated the Antoinette of Jean Rhys' book. There are many parallels between the two, as Jane is set up as a kind of shadow, or double, of Antoinette. The books are a fascinating pair. You can spend endless amounts of time admiring them both, and admiring the way they work together, which is all to Rhys's credit. It's one of the best examples of a classic work reinvented in a new context, and it was immediately recognized as such. Even so, the world didn't quite know what to make of Jean Reese. She had disappeared from view at age 49, having written a collection of stories and four novels. One can be forgiven for thinking that she had died, as many people did. Certainly, they did not know she was about to publish a masterpiece. And yet, if it weren't for Wide Sargasso Sea, her earlier novels might have been forgotten. Instead, Reese became a celebrity, a prize winner, and her earlier works became rich sources of understanding who she was, what she'd done, how she'd become a 70-something literary master. We'll end with two quotes, one on writing and one on reading. I think of these quotes as being earned. What was that great line about Joe Cocker? You're not born with a voice like that, you earn it with your life experience goes into quotes like this. Here's what she said about her writing. Think of this as from a person who earned her first literary success at the terrible price of being unhappy, separated from her family, in exile, bouncing around, living hand to mouth, living as a kind of kept woman for a while with a husband in jail, and then a long silence where she lived in a shack that let in the rain. And a third husband who also went to jail, and herself suffering from cold and health problems, and throughout that time she kept writing, and wanted to make things perfect. She said about writing, "All of writing is a huge lake. There are great rivers that feed the lake, like Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, and then there are mere trickles, like Jean Rhys. All that matters is feeding the lake. I don't matter." The lake matters. You must keep feeding the lake. Hmm. And then there's her quote about reading. This one is earned too, I think. Her life gives this one residence. This is someone who was unhappy, who never felt at home, who was a white cockroach in the Caribbean and dismissed for her accent in England. Here's a woman who took the side of the impoverished dancers, the rooming house, strugglers, the cast-offs, the ignored, the rejected. She wrote her greatest work about a woman who the world had come to view as being like a dog, a beast, subhuman, a German vampire, Bronte herself called her. She snarled and howled, and Jean Rhys said, I'm with her. I'm with her. I'm with her against you all. If all good, respectable people had one face, I'd spit in it. But here's her quote about the power of literature, which is, a good place for us to end remember this woman with her permanent immigrant mentality an exile everywhere she went a woman without a happy place to call home Quote, reading makes immigrants of us all it takes us away from home but more important it finds homes for us everywhere <laughs> That's going to do it for this look at Gene Reese. What a wonderful writer. I enjoyed that. Okay, let's go, people. Big day this week. We will be back after the election with whatever that brings. In the meantime, stay safe, do your best, and all those other good things. My thanks today to our listener, Alia. I hope you are doing well there in Venice. We are a part of LitHub Radio and the Podglomerate Podcast Network. More on that at www.thepodglomerate.com. Find us on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or at historyofliterature.com. And of course, for the podcast, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can subscribe, rate, review, and all that stuff, too. I'm glad you were here today, and I hope you come back for more. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.